Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Can I Be Funny? I'm JQ and joining me today is a professional comedian. He's nodding. This is a podcast, you have to talk. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, it's Mr. David Whitney. Good time of day. Good time of day. Eight o'clock on a Wednesday evening in the middle of Soho. Thanks for joining us on the show. Um, we met, well, we didn't meet, we saw each other across the room in uh, Dirty Dicks in Liverpool Street last week. And you were the headline act. I was, yes. It was. I I found it a bit of a struggle. Yeah. Was it? Is that a normal night at Dirty Dicks, or was it just? Well, um, and they they, they have a lot of comedians on there. They, they, it's a it's a long night, and yeah. um, I think when you've got a room full of comedians just waiting to get on, um, they don't make the most supportive audience member. No. Um, and um. It's amazing that they all stand to, stay to the end. Well, it's very nice for them to stay to the end, but they're normally thinking about whether they'd have done it differently or um, <laughs> <laughs> their route home rather than really investing in the comedy. Sometimes it's lovely and there's, you know, enough people in the audience to break up the sea of yeah. of uh, very new comedians. Uh, and then it's uh, then it can be a lot more fun, but it was a very purely <laughs> comedians performing to other comedians night, which because um, there were some people at the back. Yeah, they they were they they were laughing, they were laughing, but they were as far away from the stage as possible. It was you sort of leaning over all the people that were standing yeah. in the front, just trying to project yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of like doing some sort of golf. Uh, <laughs> chip or, a, or like a pool uh, trick shot to get mm. your, your your jokes to the back of the room while not being uh, soiled through any of the sour-faced comedians at the front. Um, so, how did you get started in comedy? Well, it's a quite a well-documented story now. Um, uh, it, it was, um, I was in Los Angeles uh, oh. trying to get a break as an actor and um, a chap I went to drama school with who's become much more successful than myself um, he got me a meeting with an agent who thought that I was a stand-up comedian I was represented at the time in London by Paul Dudridge who was a very well-known stand-up comics agent but he didn't represent me as a stand-up ah. he represented me as an actor and this agent in um, in Los Angeles he he assumed that I was a comedian. It seemed to really impress him, and uh, I, I, I saw no reason to disillusion him <laughs> of this. Of this, uh, you see, it seemed to make him happy that I would be a comedian. So why should I take that away from him? And then one day he rang me up and said, "Oh, I've booked you this gig at, in Beverly Hills." Right. And I had uh, a week to come up with my first ever set, or tell him I'd been lying, um, and that that was how it all started. That is a proper. Baptism of fire, really, isn't it? it? It was and it wasn't. I mean, you know, um, no, American audiences are a lot more polite than ours. Really? Uh, yeah, without doubt. Um, um, you know, if you had your first gig at the Hyena Club in Newcastle, that's a baptism of fire. <laughs> or, uh, you know, Junglers Glasgow or something like that. <laughs> there, there are significantly worse places to play than a very smart members club in Beverly Hills ah. to some very polite <clears throat> uh, showbiz types. Um, especially as um, a guy who sounds um, like he's walked off the set of an English rom-com thing. <laughs> I could have pretty much read the phone book, I think. Uh, 
the first time they saw yeah. me, they saw me again, they'd have probably been less forgiving. What was the material about? It was all sort of like um, uh, an Englishman's perspective of Los Angeles, really. Classic. You know, um, uh, being shocked at sizes of boob jobs and, and, and the whiteness of people's teeth. And, it uh, went down well? They loved it. They yeah. loved it. They, they were, you know, I was sort of like saying that in Britain, if you look at a, guy, a guy's girlfriend's breasts, you're going to get punched. But <laughs> in, in Los Angeles, he spent a lot of money on those breasts, so he wants people to look at them. And uh, there were lots of people in the audience going, yeah, I did. I, did. I spent a fucking <laughs> fortune on them. Look at it. Look at it. That's the best part of a car. <laughs> Brilliant. So did you immediately carry on or you just... Put it on uh, not quite. I, I used to run a whiskey shop about uh, 200 yards from here on Greek Street. Ah, that is, uh, from the Scottish heritage. Yes, well, I was born in Scotland and, um, and uh, I do like a drop of uh, good single malt. And I used to run that whiskey shop as an actor's day job and they were very, um, very nice to me and sort of let me go and do plays and come back and stuff. And But Stan, because of it, the nature of the wine business, you're doing tastings in the evening yeah there was a bit of a hiatus from getting back from la uh to actually starting um doing it properly but uh, once i freed myself of the shackles of that job then um then i thought oh it was really easy <laughs> that one gig i was a fucking genius genius unnatural took to it like a duck to water <laughs> then i found that uh playing a, a room above a pub yeah uh to eight people <laughs> Um, and 19 stand-up comedians yeah, it's a um, can be significantly harder than playing a... So when did you start doing that? What year? Um, when I restarted after the hiatus was yeah. was beginning of 2007. The LA trip was uh, sort of mid-2006. So that's a good six years you've been doing it now. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you think you've... Because I've been told you have to do at least 100 gigs before you're even... <coughs> comfortable up there people pick up these the numbers out yeah. of out of the air like you, you're sort of like dreadful up to your 99th gig and yeah. then there's suddenly some sort of hiatus but i think there are a number of of penny drop moments that you that you continue to have that you get closer and closer to your voice um and yeah i mean you do have to have uh some people talk about 10 years some people yeah that's a scary thought um uh, <laughs> you know they the but you continue to learn all the time. Some people learn faster than others. Mm. Um, and if you're not learning, if you're not having, then maybe you're doing something really wrong. Uh, some people really seem to get to notoriety very quickly. Um, and, and, and they don't seem to get any better. Uh, whereas people that continue to play the clubs, yeah, even though they may have got to a point where they can pay their bills by playing highlights and jonglers and glee clubs at the weekend, they're not on television. So they're yeah. still walking out onto stage as an unknown qual quantity. So they've still got to get the audience's appreciation. They've got to win them over. Whereas um, somebody who's had a handful of TV bookings, yeah. suddenly the audiences sort of like see them and go, oh, that's fine. We know this guy, he's off the telly. So they... they they, they're in a much bigger position of comfort and I'm not sure how helpful that is when that happens to you too early in your yeah. career. I mean, the people that I look up to, um, this side of the pond, you know, Mickey Flanagan, Hal Crutchington, Rod Gilbert, um, 
Ian Stone, uh, they, they, they all uh, had a long period uh, on, on the circuit before they started to break yeah. um, TV and stuff. Uh, there are some comedians like Jeff Innocent, who are, who still hasn't sort of like got himself a TV footage, but there's probably not a better stand-up on, in this country yeah. than Jeff Innocent. Oh, uh, um, and, you know, that's because he is out, you know, he's probably gigging six, seven times a week doing, you know, doing different audiences, doing audiences that you wouldn't expect would warm to a, a six-foot-plus bald-headed cockney. <laughs> uh, you'd expect him not to do well, for instance, in uh, a very posh part of the home counties or uh, or even Liverpool. But he's such a brilliant comic and he's been on the circuit for so long that he knows how to play every scenario. Ah, that's good. Uh, I came up with an analogy. I'm not sure if it's accurate you can tell me so if it's not my total stage time is probably 40 minutes <laughs> you're smiling going Ooh. but if you if i put my comedy career in the context of i start at nine o'clock on a monday morning yeah it's now 20 to 10 on a monday morning wow. what does anyone know at 20 to 10 on the monday morning on their first day of work well, that is that is quite yeah so it's, but you, that, uh, that i mean I think that's a great analogy and that's a good way of putting things into context when somebody who seems to think that they that they've now got their spurs and you really think god mate you really have yeah. you've not made elevenses yet let alone lunch exactly um but you know staged obviously the only place you really learn is stage time but to to only consider the time that you're on stage as the only time that you've been a stand-up comedian every time you've opened your notebook and started to ah, write something okay, is, yeah. is kind of part of your working day as a comedian um it's not as heightened it's not as it's it's not as uh it's not going to mold you and you're not going to learn as much from it but it is part of it every time you you go, oh, that would be funnier if I said penis, not cock. <laughs> You're being a comic. Or you realise, oh, purple would be funnier. Than yeah. Him, or whatever. You're using your comedic mind. Uh, every time you see something in the street and stop and desperately look for something to write down. I mean, that that's the discipline I found for the, the first year. And I've kind of gone back to it. I've regressed a little. Um you'd say something that you think would be a great idea for a routine, but you didn't want to be that prick that got out his notebook in the pub or yeah. at a dinner party or well, I go to any dinner parties. I don't know why I've got that analogy. <laughs> or at dinner. Um, you know, you go, oh, what I said is hilarious. <laughs> I better write it down for prosperity. Um, so you think, oh, but it was so fun. Everybody laughed at the table. Everybody laughed around a beer or, uh, uh, you know, wherever you are. Uh, I'll remember it. And then you get home and you get your notebook out and you can't even remember the subject matter. Yeah. Again. Was I talking about James Bond or was I talking <laughs> about uh, fry-ups? I can't remember. Um, so the discipline of going, if you've got an idea of writing it down and as I said, I went through, it took me a long time to sort of like get that discipline and recently, I, I think since Edinburgh last year, I've been a bit lazy and not... I had that the other day. Well. I was, I thought that's a brilliant idea. I'll write that down later. And then when it came to write it down, all I could remember was I need to pull out a piece of paper and read off the names of a footballer. And I couldn't remember what the setup was. <laughs> I was trying to imply that I knew nothing about football, so I was going to sort of sneakily bring out a piece of paper, but I couldn't remember any of the, uh, yeah. any of the setup, which was a bit of a nightmare. I also had a thing on, going back to learning, on Monday I did a gig 
it's like the comedy at the end of the, I've been doing a comedy course with oh, right. um, Logan Murray do you know who's oh, yes, called yeah, that, uh... so we finished that on Monday and on the Friday I did my daughter's school sports day and I had to go in the dad's race and because I do a lot of just like marathon running and whatnot, I thought I'm, I'm going to wipe the floor with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was really cocky. I just sort of tie my shoelaces up, looking at the com- the other contestants, thinking this is easy. So the teacher went three, two, one, and on everyone went on two. Oh, I was, because I was being polite and waiting for the whistle. So they all ran off, and I was chugging along after. And I thought, right, I'm going to put this into a routine on Monday. Yeah. And normally, when I write, I will think of all the others, and I'll literally write it as a script. Yeah. And then just sort of say it back. But this time, I just thought, no, I'm just going to mess around with it like I yeah. do with my mates. And I did it on Monday, and it went really well. Yeah. And just thought, that, that's how I should be doing it, really. I think, yeah, I mean, everybody's got different ways of working, but I think um, comedy comes in moments of wit of moments of uh, uh, of your funny bones coming to you and it's very difficult to reproduce that sat down with a plain piece of paper yeah. or a plain laptop screen and go right write some funny things yeah um i, I think um you know uh, i've got this routine about lying on dates and i built it over the period of a whole summer of different scenarios of lying on dates and different scenarios where both person is lying and they're completely misjudging who the other person is. Yeah. And um, it became one of my, you know, pillars of my routine for for a while. And I still love it when I get it out. And and that that was never written down. And it's a long, very convoluted routine. Uh, and I, I think, you know... That comes with time on stage. It's the comfortability that when you don't have the next line ready in your head, that instead of panicking, actually that gives you the freedom to be spontaneous and be in the moment and say something genuinely, genuinely funny and genuinely spontaneous. And then, of course, you reproduce it and pretend it's being spontaneous (laughs) when you're not at all. But that's the art of being a professional (laughs) rather than just, uh, you know, a lucky one-off. So going back to our um, Dirty Dicks last week, you're doing a lot of material about Henry VIII and history. Yeah, um, there's a a gig in, also in the city of London, actually, not too far from Dirty Dicks, in the water park called History's Greatest Monster. It's a monthly gig and you have to do material just on on history. Right, okay. So I was preparing for a very different type of gig that I'm used to. It's a nice little challenge because I normally play the big Saturday night sort of hen parties and stag do's and where I'm doing lots of difference between men and women jokes and lots of jokes about vaginas and sexual transmitted diseases and relationships and divorces and g-spots and all that nonsense that you have to do on a Saturday night when when people are in a heightened state of entertain me (laughs) I need fun I need rude words Um, and you you do end up being you can end up being very different type of comedian to the comedian you set out to be Ah. Um, so it's nice to get I mean although out of that that routine I think maybe I got out of 20 minutes that I wrote for that history's greatest monster gig I think I might have a joke that I'll do in non-history themed nights. Oh yeah, I can see. Yeah, um, but that's not. I've got a new joke which doesn't doesn't mention <laughs> any sexual organ whatsoever, <laughs> and that that's that's a relief because you know, I've become a very blue comic over the years, and it's 
So have you mm. actually done that gig or have you still... Yeah, I did. It was, the, it was 48 hours after that. It was. Did it go down well? Cause it, 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 was, it was all right. Yeah. It was all right. You know, they're, they're an audience wanting history stuff. Yeah. So you can tell a long story about Tutankhamun uh, where the jokes are few and far between because they're there for history right. based stuff. There's there's been a lot of science gigs for a while. The science gigs really? have had it quite good. Uh, the Helen Arnies and the uh, Robin Ince's uh, right. have had the this little circuit of of science nerds, ah. which equally you know they 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 blend interesting and funny, and they and they're very you know they they they're they're very entertaining nights but they're not a Saturday night in the yeah. comedy store or the glee club or something like that you know um, and their audiences are all science nerds as well so they're they're listening because they're interested as well as wanting jokes every five seconds and I think history might have a similar I, I think Mike Shepard who runs History Gates Monsters I think he's first on the scene with this yeah. this particular subgenre of a genre of a subgenre <laughs> Um, but I, I see it having a future. I think it could be very good. Learning uh, and laughing. Yeah, but also yeah, but also the art of storytelling. I mean, um, I mean, some. I'm very careful. There, there are a lot of comics that sort of like start calling themselves a storyteller when they just don't have enough jokes. Right. Um, but also, that's the, how I'm describing myself. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> equally, there are a lot of uh, comedians who have a high rate of punchlines per minute in a twenty-minute set yeah. on a Saturday night in a in a nightclub in Reading. But actually, in the cold night of day, would you like to listen to their routine on a like yeah. a CD or a, you know? Would you? Are they talking about anything other than? Um, Is it or, difficult to get that balance? Right? Bags interesting. Uh, they look ridiculous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it is, you know, because especially if you're learning any... I mean, I like playing the hell rooms. I like going into a room because that, there's nothing better to tell you. There are people that play the, you know, who do arty festivals and um, they're nev... They're, they're different art forms. They, the, the, art, the art festival, our show... Yeah where people are happy to sit there and listen um, and the jokes come every now and again and the 20 minutes set in a bear pit where you have to be funny, 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 funny. They both have their shortcomings and they mm. both have their advantages. That I think in some respect there is no better test than the hell room to find out if you are a, a blisteringly sharp comedian. Equally, uh, you can end up being a hack just talking about the three subject matters, the trivets of difference between men and women, airline food, and I don't know what the third one would be, <laughs> difference between dogs and cats yeah. or something, or um, your parents not understanding you. I don't know. That, that, those th so the, it, I, I think it's great to have a foot in both camps, which I try to do. Um, and I try to do gigs like Mike's History's Greatest Nonsense and I try and earn a living entertaining the huge masses. rooms of drunks on a Saturday <laughs> night um, you must have played the comedy store in London yeah yeah. Yes. what's that like as because I've I've done it as the gong show uh -huh. so I've actually been on the stage which is amazing and that's the first time I ever went on stage and tried to do comedy was at the gong show really which is probably a mistake in retrospect yeah <laughs> how long did you last I was on last and I did three and a half minutes. Oh, that's good. Which was okay. And I thought, great, this is brilliant. I'll, I'll do this again. Yeah. Put myself up. 
and I wrote my five minutes. Yeah. It was basically, you know, can you remember much of the Lego set I did on the other week? Just, just nod and smile politely. Yeah. <laughs> basically, when I revealed that I was going to talk about Lego, they just went boo off. Oh. So I just, I didn't hadn't even made a joke because as soon as I said the word Lego, I'm like, no, off you go. Well, there you go. They're, 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 um, I mean, I love playing the store in the rare occasions that I get to play it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, it, it's the greatest room in the world for yeah. stand-up comedy. I mean, it's a mate. Um, it's amazing how many comedy clubs ignore the the model that works. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody knows what works. Have low ceilings, have everybody facing the stage. If they've got, um, tables, put them on small tables, not big banqueting tables. Yeah. And yet, club after club have people down long banquet tables with their back to the stage. Yeah. Uh, not, not even looking at the performer <laughs> in a massive cavernous nightclub with a huge tall ceiling <laughs> where the comic feels completely unconnected to his audience that yeah. is like 500 yards away and yet you know we've got these models of places that just work and the comedy store works you yeah. walk in there and the second that you're there you're, you're focused at what's going on stage and everything's set up for the comic to go well if you don't, um, I mean the gong show's a different beast but yeah it's a bear pit isn't it yeah um so difficult. I mean, I know lots of people talk about the fact that they, they thought it was horrific and then they went there and within like 20 minutes in, they're going, get him off! <laughs> uh, I absolutely uh, love it. Yeah, uh, there is something. I mean, I, I, I had a similar experience to you that I did it on like gig four yeah. and did just short of five minutes. And, uh, and I thought, right, well, I'll, in a month a month of gigging as much as possible I'm going to breeze that extra 30 <laughs> seconds that extra 30 seconds is going to be a piece of piss and it lasted about a minute oh. and, uh, uh, there was yeah. one guy on there he was really good I'm not sure if he was doing a character but it's like a sort of Nigerian priest kind of thing and he was brilliant everyone was laughing he got to 4 minutes 50 or 4 minutes 30 and he just ran out of material literally just stopped wow and we were like oh no I went out I was pretty angry when I did it like, didn't last a minute because you'd written proper stuff yeah. and you thought I was going to freeze this well, you know, I've, I've done four gigs and I yeah. lasted four and a half minutes I think we probably both had the same yeah. thing we thought oh, this is going to be easy now yeah. and then it just no, they say no off you go it's not an exact science <laughs> I mean, it's not a lot of comics that once they pass that stage go back but it would be interesting mm. would be interesting if the comedy store did something you know unannounced just bred in bled in a couple of pros that hadn't done TV yeah and just see I mean nobody would no one would say that they'd do it because <laughs> somebody who's headlining the comedy store on a Saturday night but just happens not to have a TV career <laughs> is not going to go yeah I'll I'll happily let myself be booed off after a minute just because they don't like the colour of my shirt um, and <laughs> undermined everything I've built up in the last decade but it would be a socially interesting experiment that because I'm sure there's a lot of very very good comedians who wouldn't survive under the gong show it's an interesting environment one. there's one guy uh, the do you know the guy who does the voiceovers for that show he's in the booth the sound booth Simon he's a really funny guy and one um, comedian got up to do some stuff and he said the first thing I'm going to say 
I don't know why I'm holding, pretending to hold a microphone. Um, he said, the first thing I'm going to say is going to make you hate me and get, make you gong me off straight away. And then he said, uh, I'm a drama student. Silence in the room. And the, it's like the guy in the sandwich goes, literally no one gives a fuck. <laughs> he was brilliant that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, people don't don't like drama students or actors. <laughs> I was an actor before as a stand-up. Um, Do you think but, that was a hindrance or a help for the stand-up? Uh, both. I think it helps in just having stage craft and yeah. general performance skills. And uh, um, I mean, there was a very different type of nerves going on stage. Yeah. It wasn't like I wasn't nervous because you're on display yourself. Yeah. You're, you're without a character or a script or a direction or rehearsals or... Anything that you would expect to have uh, as an actor. So, you know, it wasn't like you weren't nervous, but you did have a certain more sort of awareness of being able to perform. Because you see some open micers go up and they, they're not even talking to their audience and they're not, you know, but they've got some little glimmer of genius, some sparkle in their eye, uh, just an, uh, an odd view of the world that you think, God, if just you stick at it just keep going up there I'm at the stage now where my friends watch the video and they go you're actually funny well that's like oh thanks you didn't think I was funny before <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is yeah the reactions to people that have known you all your life and you suddenly start doing stand-up comedy comedy I and mean, there were a lot of people that went oh, they're with me really a comedian are yeah. you sure and then before you you know, you feel like showing them your tax return or something. <laughs> yeah, most people are saying, of all the people I know, you were the last person I would have thought would have been a comedian. Cheers for the encouragement. Yeah, Thank brilliant. You. I've just got to get on stage. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, where does the inspiration come for your stuff? Is it just everyday life? Yeah, it's very everyday-ish, I'm afraid. I mean, it's not quite Jerry Seinfeld, go to the shops and come back with a routine about different types of biscuits. Yeah. You know, I don't... What's the deal? <laughs> Why isn't there just one type of biscuit? <laughs> um, it's not quite that every day, but um, I mean, I do 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 jokes about big subject matters. I've got some jokes about the arms trade. I've got jokes about Dawkins. About yeah. the, I've got jokes about the, the, the cult of atheism. Um, but mainly, my jokes are between about relationships dating sex <laughs> <laughs> the normal everyday stuff yeah I, love, I was watching your um, videos that are on your website I love the joke about um, Hoxton becoming trendy my work here is done yes <laughs> hackney 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 um, how do you remember your stuff this is the thing I'm having a problem with I think the key is not to remember it that yeah. well um, I, I don't think if you go out with a script like you would with a play. Mm. I think audiences sense it. I think they realise that you're that, that there's something... They want to think that this is the first and the only time you're ever going to say this. Yeah. And there's got to be an element of spontaneity and you've got to be in the moment to use a wanky drum school yeah. phrase. But but I, I, I think it helps not to really, you know, meet you out. It's not a piece of Shakespeare. You shouldn't be doing the ambit bentameter on it. I think you have to have an idea, you have to know where the punchline is, and then you've got to say it conversationally, almost in a way that, you know, if you try to slip in a joke into conversation with your mates, as if it was actually a bit of the conversation, 
and not you stopping the conversation to tell a joke and you were trying to get it in under the radar that you weren't doing something that you'd prepared. It's almost what stand-up is. Um, People are constantly baffled that you've said these things before. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I think now that stand-up's on television every five minutes, I think there's less of that illusion. But um, people are, you know, the, uh, the amount of, this cliche about people going up to compares and going, you were really good there. You should give it a go. You should be a comedian. I've actually done more stage <laughs> time tonight than anyone else. Yeah. Um, what do you think I was fucking doing up there? <laughs> but in a way, that's a massive compliment because you've been telling them jokes all night and they didn't realise that any of it was written. Ah, have you um, done the comparing thing then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy it. And, and, uh, I, 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 there are some clubs I really love comparing. I do a Thursday night um, at the Backyard Comedy Club, which I run with Dave Ward, and I adore comparing there. Um, the big sort of Saturday night click gigs, I prefer to do my set. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of housekeeping you have to do when you're, when you're, when you're comparing. Ah. Um, you have to change a lot of things. You can't be as blue. You can't be as risque. You can't... You know, I've got some... You, jokes that are pure you know they're, they're hand grenades and the fact that you know if this joke goes badly I am done for the rest of the evening right now if you're doing a set you're taking that risk that it may or may not go well but it's on your shoulders you die on your ass you walk off fine but if you do that that type of flip of a coin joke that could rock or it could die and then you've got to come back on after <laughs> then then once you've ruined the room and stunk it out you've got to bring a guy on yeah. well now I've made you all hate me I'll bring on another act uh, so there's an element of responsibility to the show as a whole yeah um, which you don't I mean obviously you have a responsibility every time you take the stage but there is a certain amount of thing that be on your head be it Whereas as a compare, it's your responsibility to be the host and be the yeah. nice guy, and you have to be nicer. I think when you're. Do you have to be on the side of the audience or the comedians when you're a compare? Oh, um, bit of both. Yeah, bit of both. Um, if a guy truly is obnoxious, either audience member or cop, you you've got to let them know <clears throat> you know what's going on. There was a few you know, on um, Tuesday that were a bit. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Not a bad mouth anyone, but you know. Oh, there were acts. Yeah, bad mouthing other acts. No, no, there was. I don't want to say that they're rubbish, but what time did you get to the gig last week? Um, I didn't see a lot of the show before I went on because I was going through the new material that right. I, I was doing. So, basically, one guy got up and just said, "I think his opening line was, I don't care if you hate me,' and just did all this stuff, and it wasn't funny. We well, see a lot of this stuff on the stand on the yeah. mic circuit and then you never see it again because people what people are doing is they're trying to be original. They're trying to jump the shark. They're trying to find that thing that makes them more oh, he doesn't care if he hates them. Do you know what the that what for goes through my mind if somebody tells me that they don't give a fuck? Oh, you give a fuck. Yeah. Because you know what people that don't give a fuck ever mention? How much they don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody who's going, I don't give a fuck, is saying it because he wants everybody to know that he doesn't give a fuck. Uh, it's, yeah. So on the open mic circuit, you have a lot of this sort of people going on saying, so I don't care what you think. Well, why did you stand up at all? Yeah. Why, why, why would somebody who genuinely doesn't care what a room of people thinks, 
why would they stand up and talk into a microphone in front of a spotlight? <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's the Doug Stanhope, Bill Hicks, sort of angry poet mm. um, that is just telling truths. Uh, and yeah, we all want to be that. Well, some comics do, some comics don't, but it's a very seductive persona to to be seen as. Yeah. But um, to have got that funny and that entertaining, both Doug Stanhope and Bill Hicks really did give a fuck because they honed material to be really good. Yeah. And they, you don't hone a joke to be as funny as it can possibly be if you don't care how well it's received. Um, so, the, the, I mean, it's... I, somebody, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Stan Stanley, said he, he thinks of people as the age of how long they've been going. He doesn't think of them having a real age. <laughs> uh, so he just thinks of baby comics and adolescent yeah. comics because it's, it, it, it is a bit like that. You know, you, you, you do, you do, do sort of turn up just not knowing anything and just spitting rubbish on stage. And then you've, you've kind of got your feet under the table. So you think you're Jack the lad. And I was comparing the backyard a couple of weeks ago and we had had a really nice night. It was a small audience, but everybody was doing really well. It's a mixture of new acts trying to sort of like perfect their first five or 10 minutes and very senior acts coming down to try new material. Yeah. And um, we had an act just through jigging around of people doing other gigs and doubling up and tripling up and stuff. The guy that was on last was not necessarily really a headliner. Right. And he was very uh, open spotty type act. He's very new. And he was just sort of walking up and down and tutting and rolling his eyes. And he was acting like an adult. He's an adult, but he was acting like an adolescent. When he was on stage? No, it was while he was back. It was before uh. he was on, on, walking up and down the back of the not, you know, looking at his watch and tutting that somebody had gone over a minute and something because really? he wanted to get on stage. And it's because he's been, you know, he's had pay, paid gigs for a for a heartbeat right. and and is now acting like he's king of the <laughs> roost. But, um, and I'm sure I was phenomenally guilty of that type of behaviour. <laughs> but you, you know, stand the stand-up world is not, there's no pority of moments that will remind you that you are not king of the roost yeah. <laughs> in the stand-up world. Because I haven't had... I've had one really good heckle so far. Oh, right. Um, I haven't had any heckles apart from this because the room's always been quite... I've only done eight yeah. gigs. So, sure. Um, that's my next hurdle to cross. But when I did the my first gig at the comedy store... Well, the, doing the gong show, you were doing show. a five. Yeah, oh, right. trying, to, well, trying to do a five. Oh, right. <laughs> I said, um, I was working from home one day and someone shouted out, I wish you were working from home now. Nice. I wish it, was, it was a brilliant night. Nice. nice. I had a moment that I was so proud of the first time I um, stood on stage at the the about, at the the comedy store, the Gong Show, and so uh, I live in Peckham. Big cry out Wee! from other people that live there, and I went, "Ooh, if we're all here, <laughs> I don't think we're gonna have anything left when we get back." <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, that response. I genuinely hadn't prepared saying that. Yeah. I I just said that as a response to what was happening. And and those moments are the moments you go, oh, I really am a comedian. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And then, you know, in the cold light there, when I retell that, it's not exactly Oscar Wilde. But, uh, you know, you think they're, they're the really rewarding moments. When you, okay. when you make a room laugh through a moment of spontaneity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's nothing 
don't get me wrong, the nicely honed piece of material can stay in your back pocket for yeah. years and you can pay your bills with it. But the moments when you're actually just... Uh, I I was doing a gig where this guy uh, kept on... It wasn't even heckling. He was just trying to join in as if he thought it was a conversation. Right. And then he gave this really long answer to a rhetorical question that I'd answer. And I just went... You must have a fascinating blog. <laughs> and, and the whole room had, you know, that point had got so upset with him. And the thing was, he hadn't said anything aggressive. He hadn't said your shit or anything. Yeah. He'd just been stopping the gig from progressing. So if I had ripped him apart, and, yeah. you know. He hadn't done anything wrong. Yeah, it would have been, it, it would have, uh, it would have not, the audience would have gone, oh, I'm picking on him. Don't be nasty yeah. to him. He just wants to be involved. But equally, they were getting pissed off with him. So it's when you get that right, uh, right on the money that, that, that you you measure the, the the intensity of the room in that moment, and you and then everybody laughs far more because it is it is in that moment. And we telling that story, I'll never get a laugh as much as it did did in that moment. When we was doing the course, we had to do one of one or two of the days was doing pure improv, improv stuff right one of the setups was all the other guys were sitting down uh, in the chairs and you had to get up on stage to pretend to be a minister for whatever the teacher shouted out so I was the minister for letting people down gently right. and everyone else had to ask me a question and I had uh-huh. to respond as the minister for letting people down gently uh-huh. completely empty just nothing, nothing. in there at all I, I can't hack it with um, uh. improv stuff it's really difficult. It, I think it, one has to um, force you, yourself to do it because especially once you've got... I mean, you, there's a number of plateaus as you become better as a comedian. You start off with nothing. Yeah. And then you, you build up to having a five minutes that is fun. I mean, I was incredibly improvisational when I first started on the sheer fact that I couldn't write a joke for Toffee. Right. So I'd turn up to gigs and the gig had been in diary for ages and I'd I'd sat down and written stuff. When I came to the actual gig I, th- I looked at the scrawling notes I'd written. So I'd just take the piss out of something in the room and I'd piss out, take the piss out of the audience or or whatever, or the, you know, to comment on some event that had happened in the room yeah. earlier. And I'd have the time of my life but I wouldn't be able to recreate that. But then there were moments that I could create and little stories that would start to build up a routine. And then I'd have five minutes. And then, then I'd stop developing because I had my five minutes and I didn't want to do anything that was less funny than the five minutes I had. Yeah. So that was kind of like it. And then somebody gave me a 10-minute spot and suddenly I had to do it all again. And and then you build and you build and build. But there were plateaus of getting the, the five-minute point at the 10-minute point. What was but, it like with the changeover from the five to the 10 the five to the ten wasn't that noticeable, to be honest, yep. because you're, you're kind of, um, uh, I don't want to steal his expression, but I recently heard um, an interview with Rod Gilbert in which he refers to it as finding pieces of clay. And, and that is a very evocative uh, metaphor for early pieces of material, because you're just thinking of an extra line, of an extra twist. And, oh, I've got a bit about bus drivers doing announcements like 747 captains. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've thought of another funny thing that a bus driver could say um, of uh, refreshments will be uh, served down the aisle in the form of a rolling Vinto can. <laughs> and you're like, all right, I'll put that line in and suddenly that piece is a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, and so getting... Uh, and and you'll have bursts of creativity and suddenly you won't be able to do a five because you won't know how to... 
cut it down when I had to cram it in. Um, But the first 20s were the the, the sort of, right. um, That's that's a long time, 20 minutes. 20 minutes of doing anything is a a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Trying not to make a dirty joke. (laughs) I set them up, you better. Uh, um, 20s now feel really short to me. Really? Yeah. Ah. Um, I, I remember doing a gig really early the Comedy Cavern in Bath it used to be Mirth Control's home gig yeah and um, that was where you got seen by uh, by Jeff uh, who had all these gigs that he may or may not give you afterwards if you did it well and you went all the way to Bath for no money and um, uh, the guy who was opening had just been he'd just done a tour of uh, Lucy Porter in which he'd been allowed to pretty much do the first half of the night's show so I think he'd been doing 40 minutes and he came off stage um, having done the opening 20 of that night um, and he just went 20 minutes is not enough anymore and I was sat there with another open spot and we were meant to be doing 7 minutes each um, in the middle and I was like 20 minutes isn't enough (laughs) You pretentious <laughs> arsehole. But I know it feels now, you, if it, especially if it's going well, you, mm. you see that red light and you're like, I've only just, oh, what loads I want to do. I've only just started. Uh, and that's when you start building up to an Edinburgh show. Um, when That's when you should be starting building up to right. an Edinburgh show. A lot of people start writing an Edinburgh show when they really, they haven't done a 10 minute uh, nailing it. Yeah, but you know some people have done very very well out of that out of building an art centre of crowds an art centre feel about them but never going to be funny in a Saturday night gig not in a sort of knock it out the park mentality Uh, you'd think that it would be 5, 10, 20 oh right now I'll write an Edinburgh show but now people are going well I'm not doing very well on the open circuit I'll book a room for an hour and, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I got flying on the Royal Mile, and you go, just one comic. <laughs> what, is this a five minute show? Uh, but then, then people have done it because the 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 the, the comedy club environment is not a, an ideal cockpit for everybody's creativity. Mm. You know, some people, some people want to have the long form of story. Some people are more surreal. Some more whimsical, and they're not got that punchline heavy mentality that club comic really needs to have but when I think personally personally of the comics that uh, I love they were all club comics at one point none of them really do it that much anymore some of them visit but when I think you know uh, the Reginald D. Hunters the Bill Burrs the the Louis Louis C.K. played junglers for years yeah um First time I saw Louis C.K. was in Jungler's Watford. Uh, (laughs) And now he's like the biggest thing. Exactly. And he's the biggest thing who does intelligent, interesting material. Mm. It's not like he's he's not just, you know... uh, Was it different then to what he does now? There was a lot more relationship stuff. He's still got a lot of relationship stuff. Yeah. but, But, you know, he's now given, like fame does, he's given license to Rome. And he uses that to be more and more off the wall and more and more provocative. You know, all his routines start 
by yeah. poking you in the rig, saying something, <laughs> saying something that may be conceived as racist, homophobic, or, uh, or sexist, and then he justifies it. Not justifies homophobic sex, but justifies the statement that he's made that you misconstrued the audience yeah. misconstrued as being it. And that, and and obviously now with his fame, he's given far more license to do that. Whereas at Watford Jungles, when no one knew who he was, he probably didn't, <laughs> couldn't quite. But he was still blindingly good. You know, Bill Burr always talks about going back into hell rooms, about, you know, being funny in a club. Yeah. Um, the comedy club is right for some people and some people it's not. Mm. Some people some people it makes them have a lot of bad habits. There are a lot of uh, junglers-esque comics that... I've heard this expression before, but I'm not quite sure. What well, they're, they're sort of cat skills comics who who know how to make a drunk room laugh. Right. And they, they, they're they skilled and they've learned their craft, but they're not somebody who you would... Or may, they, maybe they had it in them to be, but a wife and a mortgage and a three kids has made them this gigging machine <laughs> right. rather than this creative artist. Yeah. I mean, to people talk about when they say, oh, I'm not going to play junglers, I'm not going to play comedy store, they're just, just hell holes of testosterone. I'm going to take the Kitson route. The one Kitson was the ruler of the circuit before he went off and just did his own shows. Yeah, Kitson didn't go off to do his own shows because he couldn't crack the circuit. Yeah, he was king, and there were no more challenges for him <laughs> to do, so he moved on. Um, but equally, there are I mean, Andy Zaltzman. I love Andy Zaltzman. He is I, I, such a joy to watch and listen to. Whether you listen to his podcasts or when you even just listening to him talk about cricket where uh backstage his craziness of uh bizarre he had this thing where he started just breaking into commentating on uh on sporting events but all the players were uh rapids they'd be like uh, <laughs> JC coming up to the crease now, always goes <laughs> around the wicket. Uh, famously, JC uh, got his first century at Lords, and, and, and you'd just be pissing yourself. But you know, he, 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 by his own admission, he was never a club comic. Can you remember what it felt like when you got paid for your first gig? I think the first time that I got properly paid was um, comparing the backyards when it was the whole Lee Hurst Backyard Comedy Club. And that was because I'd started to get pick up like twenty pounds, yeah. And they didn't quite feel like getting paid. It felt like I'd been given a round of drinks or something. I don't want to feel sound dismisses of it, mm. but it didn't feel like a huge achievement. But when, when I I I'd got a call during the day because Lee Hurst didn't want to do the night for ill health or something, and I was actually rehearsing a play. At the time when I was like, oh, I'm going to be having a break from stand-up for a couple of months. And I got this phone call saying, can you be in Bethnal Green by eight o'clock? I need a compare. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And I'd just come out of the rehearsals and I ran around and, and did this comparing job. And then when I came off and saw the pay slip to sign how much money it was. And I thought, really? <laughs> that much money for that? That's <laughs> mental. Uh, and I almost thought... So it was 25 pounds. Uh, and and I did think I did think you know it was uh, it felt crazy that you get get paid to have fun on stage because I'd had so much fun that night as well you know I'd been on with three three you know standard Saturday night in a club three comedians and a compare two breaks 
and I, I think the three comics had been Hal Cruttington, Will Smith, and one other really good circuit comic. And I, you know, I was over the moon that I was on the bill with these yeah. people. I was over the moon that I was getting it. I was comparing the back night on a Saturday night in front of like three hundred people, and then. Uh, and then at the end of the night, I was like, I can almost didn't want to take the money because I had too much fun. You can't pay me for that. I had too much fun. This is what I owe you for doing. Yeah, this. yeah, it's what I owe you. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you told me that before I started. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, you become jaded and you don't think the money's enough, and uh, you stop enjoying it, and you start grumbling about fees and, and petrol prices, and uh, you spend most of your nights in holiday inns crying into a bottle of house red. Uh, it's amazing how much, how quickly the the spring and the step of the first paid gig fades uh, as you uh, acquire some habit of buying pasties and prostitutes on the way home and <laughs> you can't even you know you haven't even made any profit in the evening because you've unfortunately bought a really expensive pasty uh, <laughs> see what you did there <laughs> <laughs> so you at the point now where you get asked to do gigs rather than you ask to do gigs not as much as I'd like uh, yeah there are some clubs that I just you know I kind of rebook as it were you know I'll put three dates in the diary uh, for them over the course of a couple of months, six months or something. And then once I've done two of the three, I'll phone them and go, um, uh, yeah. oh, they'll, they'll, I'll, I'll, at the gig, I'll say, shall I give you a call on Monday about more dates or something like that? And it's not, but there are plenty of places that I'd, you know, don't play as often as I like, or would uh, I trying to get in with, you know, it's, it's a lot of places. There's, yeah, a, lot places, there's yeah. a lot of places I play, but there's also a lot of places I don't. <laughs> What's been the... Um, has there been a gig where you've just come off stage and thought, I can die now? Well, die happy type yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there have been lots of moments of just... Wow. Just sort of... Uh, every, so many times we go, oh, now I'm a comedian. Yeah. After that, now I'm a comedian. And then six months later, you have another moment of going, <laughs> now I'm a comedian. I remember the first... Uh, time I played Birmingham Highlights and it was just this massive sprawling room and it just seemed to go on forever and I thought the people at the back of the room aren't going to be any interested in the, what I'm doing on stage they can't even see me it's around pillars and they're on banqueting table and then I had that time of my it felt like I was playing Wembley the room was so long yeah you know it felt you know and, and I came off just thinking that that was amazing and just first time I did a five minute spot at the comedy store was you know a proper actual five rather than a gong show five Um, I was just out of my skin skipping down the streets with happiness things things get different you reward yourself in different ways as you move on when I started it was about can I do five minutes can I do ten minutes then it was like can I play the store can I get in jonglers or you know and um, then there were the sort of longer extended headline spots like 40 minutes that you know didn't have 40 minutes so there was going to have to be some improvisation and the audience bands but also yeah. your your material now it's really new materials <clears throat> the only time I'm patting myself on my back is when I have a new bit that works rocking a room doing old material can almost be in quite reverse of making you happy making you <laughs> quite depressed well, you think, oh, what, my so I've said that a thousand times can I just oh can I do something else yeah. what's wrong with me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can I write something else and then you have ebbs and flows and you have moments where you just you know write a whole 
chunk in the day and you go on stage and it all works and you, you're out of your mind with happiness because you're creative and you're expressing yourself. And then you'll have a much bigger gig, much bigger uh, prestige, much bigger fee. Yeah. And you'll do a joke that you wrote four years ago and you're like, really, David? <laughs> really? But they're laughing. Yeah, yeah, but you're not. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're not fooling inside. You're not fooling anybody, really. <laughs> have you found it hard work? No, it is hard work, but it isn't. You you have to want to do it, and you know if you expression if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in mm. your life. It's hard work picking up the phone and begging people for gigs. Yeah. It's hard work getting yourself places somewhere, you know, driving to Liverpool or wherever. It's hard work, you know, balancing the books so that you've got enough money because your car needs new brakes. It's actually going if actually going on stage and entertaining people is hard work. Then do something else. Right. I love being on stage. It's uh, cool. it's brilliant. Long may that last. <laughs> um, because you do this professionally now. Is there is the admin side of it difficult or is it just well, standard I, admin? I'd find my tax return difficult if I, you know, wank <laughs> <laughs> Truly be yourself. But, uh, truly be yourself in a funny way. If you're truly being yourself is Bin man. It is yeah, phenomenally yeah, tedious and yeah. then be a poet. Return and wasn't self-employed, you know, employed and was self-employed. I'd still, well, when, it's not a case of finding it. I'm just phenomenally lazy and and I hate doing things that I don't want to. Uh, so I don't resent tax because of paying it because I feel that you know you've got to pay things towards schools or yeah, hospitals. Yeah. Um, but what I resent is that for a couple of days a year, I'm made to be an accountant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is that part of it. Some people, some people are better at keeping things in order, and I'm not very good with money. Yeah. <laughs> not very good at keeping receipts and things like that. And, uh, Claiming for pasties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, are you comfortable where you are right now? Where do you see yourself in sort of three years' time? I'd like there to be to have a busier diary to to be doing more gigs. Um, I've done my first one-hour show in Edinburgh that I did last year at the Gilded Balloon, uh, struggling to evolve. Um, that was just an hour of pure club comedy and I learned that audiences tend not to really just want an hour of club comedy they want to have narrative they want to have beginning, middle and end they want to have the point of a show or certainly the critics do I'm not entirely sure if the audiences Mm. do that much but critics definitely want that so that they've got something to write about Um, and I learned a lot about writing a show as opposed to just a comedy set Um, yeah and um, I haven't really started on writing my second, my difficult second album, but um, I'm sure it. Hopefully, is there a big difference between doing a show in inverted comments and just performing? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Well, I think there is in Edinburgh. Yeah, I mean, when you buy a, a Louis C.K. DVD, it's just an hour of stand-up. Yeah, or two hours of stand-up. It doesn't have a, you know, a moral of the story or a, an arc. Yeah, um, it's just stand up. But Louis C.K.'s the best at doing it, so he's you know he can hold you for that. Some uh, guy who's frankly in his infancy of stand up, although I'm lucky enough to make, earn a living doing it, but um, you're still learning and, and and having an arc and having a beginning, middle, and end and a, and a point and a moral does help you to 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 keep the audience with you for a whole hour rather than just jokes, which. I mean, I saw Frankie Boyle do a couple of hours of jokes and I was yeah. like, you know, he's as good as it gets, you know. I mean, regardless of your opinion of his 
moral standpoints yeah. of things. He's a very good writer and joke teller. But, you know, you, there is a certain sort of exhaustion. So there is uh, of, uh, of jokes sometimes. So um, I will start working on the second, the, the difficult second album soon. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you. The light is fading. He has no lights on his bike. And I don't want him to crash and burn on the way home. Mm. But one question I have to ask before you go. <laughs> Can I be funny? <laughs> that's the name of the podcast <laughs> I'm sure you, you know if you're enjoying it you, you're doing the right thing I bet you laugh a few times yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, just gotta, I don't think there are any shortcuts in stand up you've just got to keep on going yeah just got to be on stage and find your comedy voice yeah Cause there are lots I've had lots of changes in my voice I started, I was very shouty, very aggressive. And then I tempered that and slowed it down and brought it down. Because being slow and controlled is what you need to be in big rooms to be able to control the room, you have yeah. to be. But now I'm trying to find a little bit of the original life and spark that I had to begin with, but be able to, to let it out controlledly. Yeah. And in a way, I'm trying... That's the art, you know, you find out a bit of technique, then you find out a bit about yourself and and slowly, slowly you have enough technique to truly be yourself. Brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Very wanky, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> truly be yourself. But, uh, truly be yourself in a funny way. If you're truly being yourself is, is phenomenally tedious and then be a poet. <laughs> <laughs>